Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. After four years of podcasting together, Keith, Tasha, Genevieve, and I have started a Patreon to support a show that's been a passion project for us. And there's something in it for you, too. At the $3 a month level, you'll get a weekly newsletter with podcast updates and links to our written work and other great film writing. And at the $5 a month level, you'll have access to bonus segments where we argue about the films and TV of the day and whatever else we feel will spark a good discussion. This week, I gave Tasha a ride home from the new Spider-Man movie, and we talked it over along the way. Did we get in a car crash? You'll have to subscribe to find out. And to subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson is on the first leg of her four-decade multinational tour, but she'll join us for a future episode. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're covering ourselves with glitter and face paint, completely changing our personas, and treating questions from the press with the contempt they deserve. Do you care about what you podcast? How can I answer that if you've got the nerve to ask me? I mean, you've got a lot of nerve asking me a question like that. Do you ask film spotting that? I mean, I could tell you I'm not a podcaster and explain to you why, but you wouldn't really understand. All you could do is nod your head and put up with my impersonation of Bob Dylan and don't look back. Scott. I'm not a folk singer. Scott. I'm an alligator. I'm the space invader. Scott. All right. It's probably annoying when I do this. But when a legend like Bob Dylan or David Bowie does it, it's cool and enigmatic. And I think our pairing this week bears that out. Keith, what are we discussing? Last month, director Martin Scorsese released a documentary-like movie on Netflix called Rolling Thunder Review, which assembles a treasure trove of footage from Bob Dylan's extraordinary 1975 tour-slash-roadshow of small auditoriums across America. But Dylan has never been one to be pinned down. And in true Trickster Bob fashion, Scorsese has included interviews and fanfare that are invented from whole cloth. A Next Picture Show listener suggested that we pair Rolling Thunder Review with Todd Haynes' 1998 cult favorite Velvet Goldmine, a musical about the glam rock movement that creates a parallel fiction around characters inspired by figures like David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Both films are about artists who use personas to create an air of mystery around them, which kept the press from pinning them down and sparked the imagination and occasionally the contempt of their fans. So this week we'll look at Velvet Goldmine and its enthralling and sad treatment of a movement that burned out but didn't fade away in the hearts of dreamers and outcasts. Then next week we'll bring in Rolling Thunder Review, which shares the same print-the-legend mentality when it comes to truth and fiction. And we'll do it all under our real names. We'll leave the podcasting personas to the professionals. It doesn't really matter much what a man does with his life. What matters is the legend that grows up around him. Brian Slade was the wildest rock star to come out of London. The biggest thing since sliced Beatles. But that wasn't enough. We set out to change the world. What happened? Who did it? And why? Next week is the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. One journalist is about to look into the mystery. I was trying to contact you about a story. 
From the moment Brian Slade stepped into our lives, nothing would ever be the same. He was, in the end, like nothing he appeared. Right after everything crashed, Brian seemed to get lost in a lie. Came someone else. Miramax Films invites you to throw away your expectations and take a magical trip back to the 70s. When the glam scene rocked London and the outrageous fashions, music, and behavior shocked the world. Although what you are about to see is a work of fiction, it should nevertheless be played at maximum volume. With that opening epigraph, Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine opens up into a whimsical origin story about the glam rock movement of the early 70s, flashing back to the birth of Oscar Wilde in 1854 Dublin. In the film's mythology, Wilde is an orphan from outer space, delivered to a doorstep with an emerald amulet attached to his blanket. When asked what he wants to be when he grows up, the young Wilde says, I want to be a pop idol, long before pop idols ever existed. And when a future pop idol by the name of Brian Slade ends up with the amulet 120 years later, he becomes a hero for a generation of outcasts who can express their sexuality and engage in their own act of creation. By shedding his assigned identity, Brian Slade opens up possibilities for himself as an artist and for his fans as human beings. Music has been an important part of Haynes' identity as a filmmaker all the way back to Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, his 43-minute experimental short from 1987 about the tragic life of the Carpenter's lead singer, which used Barbies as stand-ins for the actors. Superstar was removed from circulation in 1990 after Karen's brother and collaborator, Richard Carpenter, won a copyright infringement suit against it, but plenty of bootleg copies were and are available. The Barbie conceit may sound like Superstar was looking at Karen's life from an ironic distance, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Barbies were Haynes' way of suggesting the terrible, repressive strictures of Carpenter's persona and how they eventually killed her. With Velvet Goldmine, and later with the 2007 film I'm Not There, which casts six different actors to cover the many phases of Bob Dylan, Haynes is again using a fictional conceit to tell a deeper truth. He could have made a straightforward history about Bowie in the Ziggy Stardust years or Iggy Pop and the Stooges, but fidelity to biography is often boring and inadequate, especially when dealing with artists who shed their original identities like molted skin. If their careers are about reinvention, then it makes sense for the form to match it. The form Hayes chooses is Citizen Kane, with Christian Bale in the Joseph Cotton role of Arthur Stewart, a journalist investigating the mysterious past of a public figure and that emerald amulet standing in for Rosebud. It's the 10th anniversary of the night Brian Slade, played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, staged his own assassination on tour, which was essentially an act of career suicide, and perhaps a deliberate one at that. Through interviews with Slade's original manager and his former wife, played by Tony Collette, Arthur traces the rise and fall of Slade's career as an androgynous pop idol, including the invention of his Ziggy Stardust-like alter ego, Maxwell Demon, and his relationship with Kurt Wilde, an Iggy Pop stand-in played by Ewan McGregor. But this is not just the story of Brian Slade and Kurt Wilde, but the story of Arthur Stewart and the many like him whose lives were transformed by their image and their music. That's what ultimately separates Velvet Goldmine from Citizen Kane. Arthur isn't just a narrative device, but the reason the movie exists. He's the audience surrogate. He's the young man who picked up a Brian Slade album and discovered his true self, along with the other liberated souls who defied what society expected from them. That's the cultural legacy of the glam movement, and it's the legacy of Velvet Goldmine itself. 
a film that was sabotaged by Harvey Weinstein at the time and opened mixed reviews, but has since become a touchstone in cult cinema and queer cinema. It's entirely appropriate that cultural gatekeepers rejected it, just as glam rock was rejected, and entirely just that it's been discovered and fervently embraced by the outcast it represents. Or maybe we're still divided over it. We'll find out after the break. Heading up this flash stampede is none other than pop giant Brian Slade, whose stylish escapades have paved the way for a whole new breed of performing artists, from Kurt Wilde and the Flaming Creatures to Jack Fairy and Polly Small. Thanks to Slade, today's youngsters are singing a whole new tune. So you're saying you're bisexual? Yeah, I like boys, I like girls. They're all great. No difference, is there? to BBC. Rock music has always been a reaction to accepted standards and homosexuality has been going on for centuries, yeah? At the moment, having a gay image is the end You know, just like a few years ago, it was trendy to wear a long grey coat with a Zeppelin record on your own. Everyone's into this scene because it's supposedly the thing to do right now, but you just can't fake being gay, you know? If you're going to claim that you're gay, you're going to have to make love and gay style and most of these kids just aren't gonna make it. That line, everyone's bisexual, it's a very popular thing to say right now. Personally, I think it's meaningless. So as I said in the keynote, Velvet Goldmine was seen as a critical and commercial failure when it came out. Uh, what was your relationship with the film? Were you on board at the time? Or, you know, when did you see it and, and uh, how's, it, how's it play for you now? A hundred percent. I've loved this movie since it came out. Um, I interviewed Todd Haynes when it came out. It was like one of the better interviews I've ever done. I was just starting out, so just kind of a thrill to, to talk to to someone about a movie that I really thought was ex, you know executed really well on every level. It's a tough movie, though. I mean, it, it's a dense postmodern text that kind of expects you to know a little bit about the subject at least going in, and then even then takes a pretty Ah, uh, what's what's the right word? It takes an odd route to tell this story, and you know, uh, on top of everything else, is basically set in an alternate universe, uh, a dystopian version of 1984 for for parts of it as well, mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't really announce that fact. It kind of especially the notice. It, it's a movie that you kind of have to keep up with, but I think it makes it all the more rewarding and, and rewarding across repeat viewings too. What about you, Genevieve? Uh, well, I'm at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from you. This movie for a long time has like represented a great shame for me because I. Have hadn't seen it uh, for so long. And like, I occasionally, you know, inhabit queer spaces. And I've written professionally about music and film. And it just it's, it's a movie that has come up again and again, in my life. And every time it does, I'm like, I can't believe I haven't seen this movie yet. I need to get on that. And then I never do. So I'm really grateful to this pairing for finally, you know, getting to to shed that shame a little bit. I really was uh, entranced by this movie. I came away from it a little befuddled, but in a in a good way, in a way that, you know, I could feel my brain sparking <laughs> watching it. But um, I feel like I need to watch it at least like three or four more times before I can say anything truly insightful about it, because it does have that nonlinear narrative and it do- it is playing at different levels of text and metatext. But because it is playing with these biographical elements of people in a scene that I am somewhat familiar with, but not incredibly well versed in, it often became distracting watching the film, you know, trying to make what was happening in the movie match up with what I knew of the history that this movie was drawing on. 
while also totally completely fictionalizing it. So, you know, like you said, Keith, it, you know, it is, it is a difficult movie in a lot of ways and, you know, maybe hard to wrap your head around on first viewing, but it was a delight to watch. I think the performances are across the board really transfixing. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting and unusual filmmaking happening that is a treat to watch but yeah i kind of just want to hear uh keith talk about this movie for, yeah, for we, the next we were talking 40 before, minutes. before the podcast <laughs> that this was like this pairing is to keith like the basketball sure. movies were to me this is, this is totally in his wheelhouse yeah um i would say i I'm on, was on board with this film when it came out and have grown to like it more over time and i will say confess to it being a little bit estranging to me at first because it is so dense i mean and, and it really helps i think to know going in about a lot of these uh you know deep cut deep cuts about david bowie and niggy pop and you know you mentioned 1984 and i think there's a fahrenheit 451 thing and mm-hmm. there's like all kinds of you know citizen kane obviously is a huge overlay there's a, it's so dense with information and references and it's defying all the biopic cliches that it possibly can so it's really you know, I think a disorienting and challenging to start. I mean, you know, which I appreciate about it. I mean, I appreciate that Todd Haynes respects the audience enough to not start them at the ground floor uh, to to, yeah. to be to be able to to assume a certain amount of knowledge or or not even knowledge, but assume that people can feel a little bit can be okay with finding their way through this movie, even though it's not going to be particularly easy. But even if you go in uh, well versed in the career of David Bowie. You know, it starts out with the Oscar Wilde stuff, and and I don't I don't <laughs> think Haynes is the first to make that connection between Oscar Wilde and glam rock with the queerness and and its uh, you know a love of artificiality and cleverness and posturing, but it is still it's a leap to make. And, and there's that scene in the middle that where people kind of just lapse into Oscar Wilde quotes, kind of like um, in my own private Idaho, just sort of lapsing into dialogue from from Henry the Fourth. Um, it's in you know again, especially to catch up and and it's easy to get lost in this movie. Uh, well, I mean, th- that opening is really important, too, in that it establishes a mythology around mm-hmm. all of this stuff. It's not just trying to draw a connection from Oscar Wilde to the glam rock movement, it's, but it's in really inventing things. I mean, it give, gives you this amulet, for example. And wait, there weren't aliens? Oscar Wilde's not an alien? I mean, I like <laughs> no, I love no, that. Saying, but it's, yeah. it's so playful, but it's also, it's a metaphor that sort of lays out just how profound an impact this could have uh, on the culture at the time. It, however, however briefly, I mean, however much it retreated to the margins again, I mean, you get that scene and this is, I remember when I interviewed Haynes, he, he pointed out the guy being interviewed with his arm around his girlfriend talking about bisexuality is that that guy's probably not going to uh, continue uh, proclaiming the wonders of bisexuality much longer in his life. But in that moment he is, and it's, and it's this rupture in the culture and it's, and it's, there's, it's when possibilities open up. Yeah. And I, and I, and you just can connect with that liberation really. I mean, you've got, you know, in England that Haynes presents in all of its drabness, mm-hmm. you know, and particularly you, you, you got these scenes with Arthur at home with his parents who are obviously very conservative people. And uh, one of my favorite bits in the movie is, is when he goes out of the house, house with this heavy plaid ensemble and strips that off and once he gets out on the street and he's wearing you know he's got pins on <laughs> yeah, pins and a tight shirt and kind of like he's just he's kind of you know and he's running and it's just there's something so exciting and freeing about that uh, and, and of course you know not beyond that there's also just that freedom to create entirely 
new identities be able to to mm -hmm. defy what society is telling you you need to, uh, how society is telling you, you need to be and you know the film the film gets that on a, on such a primal level um, and right that, and that's I, why the filmmaking is so good and i love the scene the one that always sticks with me is the part when the, the press conference and brian slade's talking about his sexuality and and uh, arthur points and goes that's me up there to his parents but it's just in his imagination it's just such a, an amazing depiction of, of how his inner life doesn't match up with the life he's forced to live uh around his parents yeah i mean that was kind of the one thing our friend josh rothkoff was just a massive fan of this film when it came mm -hmm. out and he had he had an extremely like hyperbolic quote that made the village voice you know best of list about comparing it basically favorably to citizen kane sure and it, and it was just one, like one of those things like it like a high tone 31 year old might do is what he the way he thought about it thinks about it now but one point that he he does make and and i brought it up a little bit in the keynote is that the difference between this and in citizen kane is that arthur is a true is an important character is a true character mm -hmm. it's not somebody not merely a device who's going to be connecting these hunks of brian slade's life and then leading us to what this you know amulet is all about you know rosebud style that he himself is 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 critical and that the film wouldn't really work as well without him well yeah because he's a quote-unquote real person he's not someone i mean he's interested in the idea in these personas that these glam rockers are putting on and they, they definitely speak to him but he's always presented to us as a you know a, a human being with with troubles of his own and he's not you know uh, adopting some you know performance as life he's trying to figure out his actual life through the performance of these idols and I love the Christian Bale character, Arthur, here. I, I First of all, I just really liked going back to this, like, era of Christian Bale, you know, when he's, especially when he's playing a teenager, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the 70s, and he's got that little, like, rosy cheek, you know. He reminds me of Laurie, when he would play Laurie in Little Women, you know, you know he just, it's like a, a younger, innocent uh, Christian Bale that I, I liked revisiting. Yeah. But that, just that character embodies so much of the sadness of this movie. Like, it's a sad movie and like you know with the amulet there's like sort of a idea that like this spirit of this era can still be carried on but you know we're left in this version of the world where it it's pretty much gone extinct or, or at least late fallow and arthur is trying to reconcile that with uh his his current much drabber more gray life in in america and a conservative america I find the ending of this film very, very interesting and compelling, and it made me immediately want to loop back and watch it again if it wasn't, you know, one in the morning when I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what, what do we make, I guess, of Haynes's kind of general approach to the material? I mean, what, what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing a fictionalized history of a real movement? And should it matter that David Bowie apparently didn't approve? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, the huge absence here, obviously, is Bowie's music. And even though it's, you know, roughly about, yeah, not even roughly, I mean, it's obviously very directly inspired by him. But I think that it's actually fine. I like the new songs, for one thing. But I also feel like, as much as this is a great movie about the glam movement, it's not a very good Bowie biopic. You know, Brian Slade is a complete cipher by design. And Bowie was a person with a personality. And, and I think in, in kind of like removing even 
the suggestion of it being a Bowie biopic by having his music gone and, and making the resemblance between their life a little, you know, a little less direct in, in some ways, I think you can kind of get the bigger picture that way and not focus on, you know, this is the David Bowie story versus this is a story of a moment in music history and cultural history. That's a really good point. I think, I think, no, I think about it, especially the music. I mean, if, if you, if you are larding this film with, you know, very familiar David Bowie hits that it does lose that, parallel fiction aspect and it becomes a problem i always thought too that maybe he was not thrilled with the character of the, of the wife sure i probably doesn't care to revisit uh by all accounts a very tumultuous marriage yeah <laughs> yeah yeah which the film is extremely uh frank about as well i mean right the, just this the uh, you know utter um neglect and contempt you get this that final scene of the two of them of slade and 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 his wife where he's he's in bed bed, snorting cocaine off of someone's behind and it's like not a not a great ending not Mm. uh, to a marriage as far as like the advantages and disadvantages of of this approach i mean keith spoke very eloquently to the advantages. I think the disadvantage is that it is often distracting. Like I kind of alluded to earlier, if you have sort of a working knowledge of this era and these figures, but maybe are not fully steeped in it, I feel like you end up spending a lot of this movie like wrestling with what is fact and what is fiction. And oh, wait, did David Bowie and Iggy Pop like actually have an affair? Or was that just applied? Or, you know, like, what are the nuances of it? Like, there were several times over the course of this movie where I had to like kind of resist the urge to like go to Wikipedia or something, you know, yeah. just to be like, is, is this is this for real? But you just have to keep telling yourself like it doesn't matter, like that that's not the point of this. And I'm glad it's not the point of it. Like biopics are very rarely that interesting, and and very rarely say something compelling about the artist that that speaks to a larger theme that that audiences can take away and and mull over so the fact that this movie is able to do that in so many different ways i think is directly related to the fact that it is not a traditional biopic i mean that's exactly right i think the problem with biopics about artists is that their personal history often doesn't illuminate what's great about the art and this movie can do nothing but can focus on that completely with that with having just a you know a casual relationship to what actually happened and so and so every scene in this movie and every event that happens really ties the music and the in the drama so closely together and, and in such a meaningful way it's not like this birth to death thing where you're just kind of piecing together a person's life and it doesn't really make sense or doesn't really give you any special insight into their art because sometimes those things don't really connect like they should in a biopic. Well, especially with an artist like Bowie who cycled through so many different you know, artistic phases in addition to different personas. If this were a traditional Bowie biopic, you'd, you'd either have to cycle through all of those you know, phases in a really brief, unsatisfying way, or you'd have to just focus on one specific era and find something, you know, interesting and specific to say about that. I think probably all of us would agree the the latter approach would, would be preferable, but it would still not approach what we uh, get with this film. Yeah. I mean, and I, I didn't see... Uh... Uh, like bohemian rhapsody <laughs> but i would say i mean that kind of approach would would have been a disaster with this subject wouldn't it yeah i, I think i absolutely oh it's a disaster with <laughs> the, queen, <laughs> the queen version frankly yeah um or, or even i enjoyed the film rocket man uh, while admitting it has some very silly elements to it um 
But um, that's not the kind of movies that Haynes makes. You know, they're, they're, he makes movies that are um, have far less tidy in many ways, have raised more questions, and um, don't fit neatly into any of those those boxes. And and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's part of what makes this film so so rich to revisit because there's just a lot going on. There's a lot crammed in here. And everything else, the music just kind of pushes along. It's it's just a propulsive music video of a film um i just enjoy that the rhythms of it uh, as well and I, I think losing the bowie music uh while unfortunate in some ways i think it opens up a room for a uh, lots of great roxy music songs and brian eno songs and maybe things that yeah. that that you're not you know if you just know bowie you're not gonna necessarily know oh yeah i mean that brian eno cut <laughs> at the beginning of the film is just so awesome when you get to it uh needle in the camel's eye mm-hmm. oh my god and the image that it pairs it with too it just kind of captures the spirit of, of what it's trying uh, the moment it's trying to depict too for sure for sure we do blessedly not get any of those brian slade needs to think about his whole life before yeah. he sings moments <laughs> uh, uh so uh that kudos I mean, for that kind of the beginning when he when we see him going on stage uh to meet his quote unquote end you know mm. uh there's there's a little bit of him uh having to think about his whole life before going on stage you know to get assassinated but it's obviously not done in in that kind of way but it does set up a a bit of a flashback structure although with a with a movie like this you know the narrative is nowhere close to linear so and the degree to which the character has any kind of inner life to reflect on too yeah, it's just too. i mean another reason if you're david bowie beyond probably wanting to control your own story you you don't necessarily want to to see a fairly harsh depiction of who you were in the 1980s as the character that he reinvented himself oh my as, God. too, which looks yeah. so much like the bleached out Bowie of, of the Let's Dance era, who was, you know, everywhere and on MTV. And, and um, if you were a fan of sort of the dangerous, sexually androgynous Bowie, you're going to wonder who this guy was, who took who took your David Bowie's place. Now, I, I like that era, frankly, and, and and he was not like he was saying flattering things about uh, Thatcher and Reagan as as, as Tommy Stone does, but um, <laughs> it, it is certainly pushing elements of who he was at that point in time to their um, most unflattering extreme. Yeah, it's a really tough portrait of this character. I mean, he's a he's not as a human being does nothing like likable. He's, he's Extremely narcissistic. He's a magpie for others' ideas. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. As signified in him taking the the emerald, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. He could not be more magpie-like in that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and, and then, of course, the, you know, the way he kind of uses and abuses his wife and uh, and anybody who comes in his orbit, I mean, this is, this is a tough portrait. Um, and yeah, at the same time, he, he's utterly transfixing as he should be. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the more distance that you have from him the more inspiring he becomes like the the you know he just has you know is on this mission whether he's conscious of it or not to just unlock something that's in the culture that it needs to be unlocked and once he does that i mean it's just you know it's like a pandora's box thing i mean you can't put it back and, and in this case you really wouldn't want to put it back that said, watching the movie, I found the Kurt Wilde character much more maybe immediately compelling, you know, like it's a it's a hell of an entrance that uh, you and McGregor gets in, into this film. <laughs> yeah. And as it should be, I mean, like that is a figure that entrances Slade. And so it should be entrancing to us in, in that moment, you know, but I think like Slade's sort of empty vesselness or, or, you know, his willingness to just sort of absorb the the qualities of others that he finds compelling. It's not that Wilde doesn't 
have that, but he achieves it in a more natural seeming way. And I think that is why Slade is attracted to him as a figure and as a, a friend, I guess. I guess we can debate whether that is ultimately a, a friendship or some of it, something more toxic. But like I said, I, I love all really four main performances in this movie. But I think Ewan McGregor is just the most immediately attention grabbing. Yeah, I mean, that performance is incredible. And it comes right on the heels of Slade delivering a boring performance, you know, yeah. that, that, that gets... Uh, meets with a tepid response and then and leaves him in a place where it's like, what am I even doing? And then he watches um, Kurt Wilde do his thing, and it's just it's just so raw and has kind of a raw power to it. You might even say, oh, that's right, God Almighty. <laughs> See, not even I, I can't I can't avoid the uh, Iggy Pop thing, but that is a, a, a great a moment. And, and the contrast between the, those two characters really gives a movie a, a spark when he needs it. This was a period when if you went to independent films, there was really no way not to see you and McGregor's penis. So it's good to see <laughs> that carrying that, that tradition along. Uh, no, he's great in this movie too. And, and he is just sort of the, it's such an open character. Uh, and I think it's you know not an accident that for as much as Arthur's relationship to Brian Slade is the more he knows the less Unless he idolizes Brian Slade, um, Kurt Wilde is is a different sort of character, and and obviously they have a much closer connection, and physically and and emotionally as well. And and, and the, I don't know if it's, you know, Haynes isn't someone who gets wrapped up in authenticity. I think he's kind of anti-authenticity in some way, but yet in this character, there is sort of like this guy is the real thing, and that plays out in a couple of different ways in the course of the movie. Well, he he's not really the real thing. Jack Ferry is the real sure. thing, right? Right? Yeah. Like he's sort of the embodiment of again, not authenticity, but sort of like the purest. Uh, he's not taking from anyone. The else. purest form of inauthenticity, you know? I guess. In the in this yeah, film. yeah, exactly. One of the advantages, too, of, the, of Haynes's approach is that he doesn't have to wrap up any of these character arcs except for Slade's, really, and maybe Arthur's, uh, in any kind of conventional way. Like, I mean, it really, these characters just kind of disappear, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a really a satisfying end to the Slade-Wild relationship. It just kind of, it just kind of is, that part of the story is no longer what the movie's kind of getting into, and that's fine. It works. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily, if you were doing things in a more conventional way. So I mentioned the keynote, Superstar, Ken Carpenter story, and then later Haynes's Bob Dylan movie. I mean, how how do you see Velvet Goldmine fitting into the context of what Haynes does as a director, and what what are the, sort of the Haynesian themes that sort of stand out for you? He's so gifted at pastiche and homage, and that plays out in a couple of different ways in this film. Uh, it's almost like kind of a crazy quote of different homages to different things from his own homage to, to Superstar and that scene with, with the dolls of Kurt and Brian uh, talking and then sort of <laughs> all these like, references to early music, well, not even music videos, but music promo films, uh, that amazing sequence of uh, the dollhouse and that strange lizard alien creature, uh, the Maxwell Demon song. But, you know, I think... If you're Haynes, you might get scared off by this film's reception and make something safer. But I mean, Far From Heaven was his next film, which was, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, if anything, just as demanding. It required you to know a little bit about Douglas Sirk melodramas going in, but also enough to spot, 
you know, what he was bringing to this form, how he was using that language differently. So, um, you know, if nothing else, I, if anything, I, f- I feel like the ultimate effect on his career was for him to redouble his efforts. And then I'm not there. The Bob Dylan movie, which I, I like a lot as well, is is almost like, um, okay, let's let's do what we do with Velvet Goldmine, you know, fractured into six different short films over the course of 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 uh, one feature. So, um, you know, I think I think it's kind of a key film in the filmography in some ways. Yeah, I mean, and don't forget about Poison as well, which is sure. which is his what nineteen ninety absolute landmark in, in queer cinema and you know takes taking these jean genet stories and and giving you what three i think different I so, very yeah. different looks uh genre wise um he just has a great feel for conceptualizing movies and structuring movies and kind of like getting that part right first and then and then filling in the blanks is finding whatever the right form is whatever the appropriate form is for for the ideas he wants to express and and velvet goldmine just it just seems so perfect just so hand in glove the form of this movie with what the movie is actually about and um you know and then and then a movie like safe the way that one shifts from from suburbia to this sort of retreat that the Julianne Moore character goes to to recover from this environmental illness i mean those two parts of the movie are so staggeringly different it's such a huge shift and that makes it for a very exciting and surprising viewing experience and so and so you know i mean that's kind of been the way he does things i mean in a way carol is kind of you know movies like carol and and wonderstruck and mildred pierce to some extent though that's a pretty radical in its own way for tv you know those are maybe slightly more conventional but he does like to think through first like how the form is going to complement the the content and so we really should talk about the soundtrack because <laughs> that's a huge part of the movie. That's a huge part of the appeal. I mean, this is a musical. You know, it's a, it's got a, it's a mix of classics from Brian Eno and Lou Reed, Roxy Music, and uh, and then it's got some modern bands who are influenced by glam, like Shudder to Think, Placido, and Pulp. And then there's the Venus Furs and the Wild Rats, two supergroups uh, that bring Brian Slade and Kurt Wilde's music to life. How does all that work together? It struck me how many '90s bands, you know, drew so so heavily from from uh, uh, glam rock because it was not hard to recruit '90s musicians like from Tom York to Pulp and and so on that felt the need to repay a little bit of uh, the debt they owed to to the form. Yeah, I mean, and I think everybody had to have been. I mean, this is still a movie that cost under ten million dollars to make. Is mm-hmm. as, as incredible as it looks, and that's how much music is in there. I mean, I think all of them had to have been invested in this idea of trying to bring this thing that they love uh, to life. Because I mean, this, these little, just these bands alone, these are, are so loaded, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, like, yeah. You know, I mean, the Wild Rats has got has got a couple of people from Thurs- from uh, from Sonic Youth, and it's got Mike Watt and Mark Arm. I mean, that is an incredible. One of them actually has Andy McKay from Roxy Music in it as well. Yeah, yeah. From that, he's in Venus and Furs. You know, and then Tom York, Johnny Greenwood. That's that's pretty good, and and, and you know, and those it pays off. I mean, those are, you know, I, I don't think there's any time when you listen to the soundtrack of this movie where you're like, ugh. That's just a bad imitation or that just doesn't feel right. Can I just share an embarrassing story from the early days of uh, file sharing Uh, when uh, Napster was uh, routinely just flooded with uh, incorrectly labeled files, you know, uh, songs attributed to the wrong artist. 
uh, probably for a good like four or five years in college, the only version of 20th Century Boy I knew was the placebo version <laughs> because because of this uh, this movie. And it's a really good version. I like I I'm you know I'm 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 a little ashamed of that, but I don't regret that I had that version of the song in my life for for so long before hearing the T-Rex version. Well, I mean, if it's something you think is the real thing, then it's placebo, right? Mm, <laughs> oh. No? Come on, that was solid. That was solid. Placebo uh, was kind of an interesting band. I mean, I'm just never hugely fond of them, but with that, that album, Without You, I'm Nothing, is a pretty good kind of modern glam record. But yeah, it's just it all it all does work well, and I think you would expect that some of the covers or some of the original songs would pale in comparison or, or stand out in a bad way next to yeah next no, the, to the, the really the great pseudo songs. the pseudo Bowie stuff is is it's really I mean it's obviously an homage to what Bowie was doing at the time but in in a way that could pass for something that uh, w- is from the era itself for sure well, let's wrap up this discussion by talking about the end of the movie, which is pretty sad. Um, um, it's it's uh, what 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 did you think of it? I mean, for a film that is um, so much a celebration of this music and in in the the possibility of it, it also has kind of a you know a dark side. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of a a cultural window that opened and then closed, and and almost in a way, it's like fashion moved on. So some of, but also some of the freedoms that came with that fashion moved on with it. I mean, there's a lot that doesn't get mentioned directly. I mean, you get the sort of caricature of 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 the coming of the Reagan Thatcher era by by basically having um, it turned into Orwell's 1984, a reference to Bowie um, long wanting to stage a musical version of 1984 and kind of basically just taking the story for his album Diamond Dogs, um, but. I mean, also, you know, AIDS goes unmentioned um, in this as well. But I mean, that's certainly the chilling effect that that comes in uh, at some point there. I, I think it's sort of and like the image of Kurt and Arthur on the on the roof, like, at, you know, after their night together is sort of a it's lovely and kind of wistful. And also there there's there's a sense that this was just a moment and they had to had to appreciate it and and to not have the tide turn back you have to try to sustain these moments yeah that said like because arthur ends up with the emerald at the end right wild wild gives mm-hmm. it to him right i'm remembering yeah, that right that's correct yeah so he's left with this like tangible reminder sort of that like this was real it, it you know did really happen because i think like because there's such a huge, you know, visual and mood contrast between the the present day of of the 80s and the heyday of the glam era, you know, it can feel like everything that is being remembered and reminisced about here is is a dream, you know, and it's so far removed from their current reality. So the fact that Wild like gifts him this this talisman kind of, you know, of what that period meant to him and and changed him as a person it's not not sad but it's it's more i'd say more nostalgic you know it's a nostalgic sadness and that there is a affection wrapped up in it, in it and a reminder of of what was there's a little bit of hopefulness too as arthur's a writer so perhaps he can commemorate this in some way mm-hmm. and right, so it, it won't be yeah. forgotten yeah and, right. i mean this is this this uh emerald is a gift from uh, outer space i mean it's it, it's it's and it's stuck around for a while i mean it, it's gonna remain 
with us, even if not everyone can see it uh, shine in one particular moment or the other. One little thing: we uh, the assassination itself. I just, I, I, it's I, I kind of stuck on it in terms of like what, what were you was your thought about? I mean, did it seem just a deliberate act of self sabotage to you? Is that how was that your reading on it? Pretty much, yeah. I, I don't know that I mean, there is. It is unclear. It leaves unclear what happens in the years between uh, that that moment and Tommy Stone's ascent uh, as an '80s pop star. Whether this was the plan all along, because he does pick up Shannon, who's like the other person who starts guiding his career. So it could have been like sort of a long term play. It's almost it almost works better as as metaphor than as uh, as plot device. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Bowie like quote unquote kill Ziggy Stardust on yeah. stage though? So is it so? It also feels like it's referencing that quite explicitly. Yeah, it's, all, it's there's a fairly the last um, Spiders from Mars concert. It, it is a fairly sadistic moment where he just said this is not our last, not just the last show of the tour, it's our last show ever. And you can hear on that recording, you can hear just the audience's heartbreak uh, as <laughs> as they hear uh, as he makes the announcement. The other thing is that Bowie did. Um, have a paranoid uh, fear of being assassinated on stage. So that's another biographical detail th- <laughs> thrown in there. <laughs> the more we talk about it, the more obvious it becomes like why he didn't want yeah. to be involved with <laughs> in this movie. I think I think it's just between just the, the way it depicts him uh, through Brian Slade and then all of these events in his life that, that have caused him so much uh, uh, trauma and heart- heartbreak, it probably wasn't easy to sit, sit through it at all. And by, by the time this movie came, a couple of things. I mean, Haynes was not, I mean, he definitely had a lot of acclaim at that point, but he wasn't the uh, canonical director that he is now. I, I don't necessarily know that. I mean, you can see where, where he was, where he was in his career, the, that Dylan might feel a little more comfortable turning over his life to him as well. But Bowie later in life was much more of a soulful, reflective person than he was at this point in his life. And then maybe he doesn't want to be reminded of that moment by other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe so. But uh, shame on him for being, for not uh, knowing Haynes's work better at this point, he already done. <laughs> it, safe had already made like sure. you know was on its way to making the being the best film of the decade according yeah. to Village Voice. Anyway, uh, speaking of Dylan, we'll we'll of course get into him quite a bit more on our next episode. But for now, we'll go to feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We're still getting plenty of emails about our pairing of Godzilla King of the Monsters and the original 1954 Godzilla, including a very long one from Holly, which we're going to excerpt here. Genevieve? Uh, Holly's letter, which we will post in full on our Facebook page, it takes us to task for missing how the environmentalist message in Godzilla King of the Monsters connects to the original Godzilla, and how the spiritual and mystical elements elevate the franchise from films about literal city-stomping monsters to something more fluid and metaphorical. Holly doesn't feel like city destruction is the point of King of the Monsters. She writes, King of the Monsters represents a battle that's much larger than the destruction of one or even a number of cities. It's a battle for humanity's soul and our planet. Cities represent our rapid expansion, our need to change the environment to suit us in our commercial greed. You mentioned the economic impact and devastation caused by Godzilla and Ghidorah's fight in Boston, but surely this pales in comparison to the fact that Ghidorah is terraforming the planet. Obviously, the literal and real destruction of a city is a horrific event, but on a symbolic level, it represents the aspects of humanity that will cause our destruction. 
We can make major changes and sacrifices in our day-to-day lives, or we can wait until the whole planet's underwater, just as Godzilla can knock over some buildings in Boston or allow Ghidorah to render the planet uninhabitable. So what do, what do we think about that? I think it's an interesting reading of the film. I think I think it's there in the film. I just, I just wish it was more effectively conveyed in the film. I, if they wanted to make a Godzilla film that used the environmental crisis that we're all facing right now um, in the same way that they originally used the atomic bomb, I think that would be really effective and something we'd be talking about, but it's not done in, in, in a way that, that really carries that message for, for me. Uh, maybe the next time I watch Godzilla King of the Monsters, it'll, it'll <laughs> maybe. It'll, yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, I think I had that problem too, is that, is that the problem is when you make a movie that's, not as coherent as it should be you do lose some of the thematic punch of it as well um so you so intellectually i can look at a movie like king of the monsters and understand it as an environmental metaphor and see godzilla as being almost representative of this kind of balancing force sort of you know this uh, like a barometer of the health of the planet it, and then and then all these other uh, other forces that come to life as a result of things being thrown out of balance but i just again i I don't know the film really accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish for me uh but holly's letter is good and and really we have just excerpted this little bit there's a lot more to it and um she also talks quite a bit about the original godzilla and shin godzilla and she has a very good sense of the whole franchise and, and what it's meant over time so i really want to see shen godzilla i still haven't seen that um, it's, it's a lot of respect right yeah, yeah we had we had uh several listeners uh give us the why didn't you bring up shin godzilla <laughs> yeah it's because i don't think any of us have, we've all been bad godzilla fans i haven't watched it yet yeah. but but uh maybe this weekend i've seen calf godzilla but not shin godzilla anyway to be stomped terrible all right so we love getting voicemail we, we get it so rarely but we really love it and we have a good one this week from Anthony on our big episode. Anthony believes that you couldn't make big today, but maybe not for the reasons you might think. Check it out. Hi, my name is Anthony, and I'm catching up on a uh, little bit older episodes, and I just have wanted to share a thought about big. It's been my theory that you couldn't make big today because everything that Josh Baskin does is now socially acceptable for 30-year-olds to do. It would make perfect sense if a 30-year-old had that apartment, behaved that way at work, um, you know, had the soda machine and the pinball machine. Like, I feel like everyone in my generation, we're in our, I'm in my mid-30s, you kind of know someone who has some crazy thing like that that they spent all of their money on. We've become an entire generation of Josh Baskins, so the movie wouldn't play the same now. He, like, if he's that excited about toys, so what? A lot of 30-year-olds are excited about toys. I don't know what Big would look like now, but Josh would have to be a fundamentally different character, or it would have to be a 21 Jump Street style movie about how all of his peers at work are just like him. I love this this voicemail. We, like It's been a while since we did the Big episode, but I, I seem to remember we had a fair amount of discussion about how you couldn't really make this movie today because of the awkward romance at its at its center mm-hmm. and how that would not play in, in an updated version or a gender swapped version for that matter <laughs> no. uh but uh gender, but this oh, gender swapped version that would be just that was this the internet would uh, collapse <laughs> right um but i like that anthony homes in on this as the you know the real barrier to creating a, a big 
uh, remake, which is uh, valid, I think. I mean, I think a clever screenwriter could probably make a lot of hay with with the fact that, you know, so many adults today are living out their Josh Baskin fantasies. But yeah, it couldn't you couldn't just repeat the plot as is, I don't think. Oh yeah, yeah I think, like half, half the dads when I pick up my kid from summer camp uh, during the uh, she goes to day camp, uh, and like half the dads that are there are wearing like Star Wars t-shirts. I'm usually wearing oh, sometimes I'm wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. You know, it yeah. is you know we 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 become a couple of generations in fact that that are kind of defined by our, our childhood tribalism, and, and I'm sure it's very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend. I have a friend. Uh, I have a friend of my uh, brother-in-law who is a Lego collector, and he mm-hmm. he he always goes out and he buys two sets. Sure. One one to co- collect, and another one to construct. So he's got this inc- this a massive floor of all of Lego constructions and and sets. So so this is a real thing. I mean, you, Michael Sarah's doing this right in, in every movie he's in. Some probably. Wow, you just will take any opportunity to trash Michael Sarah, won't you? <laughs> Me? This is my first time. No, it's Tasha who doesn't like Michael Sarah. Remember her her weird. Uh, uh, we we have the debate about Twin Peaks. It's one of our burrito uh, le- lettuce okay. style throwdowns. I'm pro Michael Sarah. <laughs> I'm pro Michael Sarah. And that as uh, what's his name in that Twin Peaks? Is it Wally Brando? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we have a beef over Wally Brando. Tasha's on the wrong side of that one as well. Um, and she can't <laughs> defend herself because she's not here. That's a, vict- that's a clear victory for me. Uh, <laughs> so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response in a future episode too or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder Review, a Netflix docufiction about Bob Dylan's legendary mid-70s musical roadshow. Look for that next Tuesday, or even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, make a wish and see yourself on stage. Well, you're the grand wine, have you noticed? When you're walking, all the fatty boys are bad and nervous. Well, my starship doesn't want back, and you doesn't well. I'm glad I got you on my view screen, sailor. You're the 